You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. What is the greatest leadership lesson that you have ever received? I remember when I was 19 years old, I started working for a landscaping and gardening company. It was good work. It was hard work. I remember getting soaked to the bone in the middle of winter with it raining on us, pulling out weeds. I remember uh, sweating in summer, having to mow lawns that were as high as we were. People would just let them go. I remember literally having to move a ton of mulch. But I also remember a conversation I had with my boss, Ferg. So we, we worked at a lot of mansions, a lot of high-end houses, and I hadn't done much gardening before. I hadn't done much landscaping before. And I was worried that I was going to stuff something up. I was going to kill something. I didn't know how to do all these things that I was being asked to do. And I, I remember saying something to, to Ferg one day, and he took me aside and said, look, I can teach you how to mow a lawn. I can teach you how to trim a hedge. I can teach you how to take care of roses. I can teach you how to quote a job. I can teach you how to manage people. I can't teach you to turn up on time. I can't teach you to do the job right even though you're exhausted. I can teach you to be competent, but I can't teach you character. And so that's on you. But if you take care of that, if you you are someone I can trust, then I will invest into you. I will teach you how to do all the things that you need to do to be able to do the job right. And that lesson has stayed with me for so long that, yes, competence is important. Being able to do the job right is important. But character matters so much more than competence. You don't have to look very far to see a roadside littered with people who are excellent at doing the job but failed or were taken out of leadership, taken out of opportunities, taken out of the workforce Because their character failed. You can look to Hollywood. You can look to Wall Street. You can look just about anywhere. You can look at the church. Character matters. And you might be asking, what does this have to do with the letter to the church in Corinth? Paul's second letter. It's the second letter to the Corinthians. Well, it matters a whole lot. Because what we're going to look at today is Paul under fire. His character is under question. There are allegations brought before him that he isn't trustworthy, that he is double-minded. Character matters. And so it's important to look at what Paul does when his character is under question. I really like the uh, illustration that N.T. Wright comes up with. He says that looking at Paul in these letters is sort of like seeing a friend walking down the street. He's happy, he's whistling, he's singing a song, and all of a sudden he ends up in a house and you're waiting outside and you're like, where did my friend come? And then he comes out and he's battered and he's bruised. He's got a blood lip, he's got a black eye, and you're going, I hope my friend's all right. But you're also thinking, what on earth has happened here? That's sort of what it's like for us reading 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians back to back. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul is chipper, he's he's passionate. And then in 2 Corinthians, he's battered and bruised, he's emotional. 1 Corinthians reads like a bit of an, an essay, someone arguing something with depth and 2 Corinthians reads like a Facebook post written at 11 o'clock at night after a really hard day. Paul's emotional. 
And I, I get it. Not only has he experienced a traumatic experience, but insult has been added to injury because the church in Corinth is now writing to him, communicating with him, saying, we don't trust you anymore. We think you are double-minded. His character is under question. And maybe you've experienced something like this before. Maybe something has happened at your workplace. Maybe something has happened in your life where people aren't just questioning what they do, they're questioning you. Maybe that's happened to you before. I, I know that that's happened to, to me and it leaves you, feeling, you feel, it leaves you feeling abandoned, hurt. The people that you love, that you work with, that you work for are now questioning not only the work that you do, but your very character, your integrity. So what do you do? When your integrity is under question? What do you do when your character is under fire? We're going to look at what Paul does, because I think it is incredibly instructive, but also incredibly encouraging to see what Paul the Apostle does when he is under fire. His character is in question. I can't wait to jump in, so let's do that right now. I'd love you to grab a Bible, have it close to you, and we're going to work through the text line by line. So let's start in verse 12. It says this, Indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom but by God's grace. For we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. And I hope that you will understand completely that just as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride, just as you are also ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. And what Paul is doing is these allegations have been brought against him, and this is his response. And I think it's interesting what he starts to note here. First, he says, my conscience is clean because of my conduct. These allegations are baseless because Paul can look to what he's actually done and said, no, 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 I have acted, I've acted in sincerity, in grace, in purity. I have a clean conscience. I'm not feeling guilty about what's happened because of my conscience. But I think it's especially interesting what Paul appeals to as he does this. Because anyone can say this, right? Anyone can say, yeah, I've got a clean conscience. I'm not worrying about it. But Paul makes an especial, a special appeal. He brings into mind the return of Lord Jesus. He, re- he brings to mind the reality that there will be one day where he comes face to face with God, where he will give an account for his life, for the way that he's lived. And he said, in light of that, in light of the fact that I'm going to have to give an account for the way that I've lived, for the words that I've spoken, for, the way, for what I've done, I have a clear conscience. I remember there was, a, there was a moment in time in the, the 90s and the 2000s where rappers would call out, only God can judge me, shouting out to their haters. And I always thought, that's insane. That, sh- that, that thought should scare the hell out of you. Because not only God, can God judge us, God will judge us. Like We will have to give an account for our lives. That, that's not something to be spoken about in a song. That's something to bring you to humility and grace. But Paul says, even in light of that, even in light of the fact that we live what theologians call karam deo, we live in the presence of God, we live knowing that God will have to give an account to him. 
I have, a, I have a clear conscience. But by this stage, we might be asking, well, what are the allegations against Paul? What are the allegations that have been brought against him? And so we read on in verse 15. Because of this confidence, I plan to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit and to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. Now, when I planned this, was I of two minds? Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? No, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed amongst you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Now it is God who strengthened us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. The allegations against Paul is that he's changed his mind that he promised to come to the church in Corinth before he went to Macedonia, but now he's changed his mind a couple of times. Now remember, this isn't like modern world. He can't just jump on a V-line and be in Corinth in 20 minutes. This could be a delay of up to a year, two years. The journey that he's taking is dangerous and long. This is a significant delay. And he's promised them that they're going to come. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, verses 5 and 7, he says this, I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. Paul had as good as promised that he was going to come to the church in Corinth first. But now he's changed his mind. Something had happened to change his plans. And it's important to know the geography of the place because uh, scholars and theologians assume now that Paul was writing this from Ephesus, which is across the water to Corinth, but it's only 400 kilometers away. Traders, it's, it's not a very long way away in the ancient world. Traders would have made this journey a lot. Paul made this journey. But instead of going this short way to Corinth, what he said he would do before he goes to Macedonia and then come back is now he's taking the long way route. Not only does it take long, but it puts him in danger. And the church in Corinth is going, what, what's happening? What's going on here? Why have you changed your mind? Are you double-minded? Can we not trust your words anymore? They got the impression that Paul has misled them. He said, I'm coming to you, and now he's not coming. Maybe Paul isn't the man we thought he was. It's interesting what Paul points to next. He doesn't continue on his credentials. He doesn't uh, relay all the things that he did in their midst when he's come to visit them in the past. Rather, he points to the faithfulness of God. He says in verse 18, As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. 
As God is faithful, a message to you is not yes and no. Because God is faithful, that's not the way we act with you. I'm responding not just to my own plans, my own will, my own desires. I'm listening to God and He is changing our plans. Paul points to the faithfulness of God as the reason for the change in plans rather than human double-mindedness. It leads to him saying this incredible sentence, which is just a, a, a jewel in this passage. In verse 19, uh, verse 20, every one of God's promises in, is yes in Jesus. Every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus. N.T. Wright says that in this line, there is a triple yes from God. In this line, he's saying yes to the promises of the Old Testament, that all of the things that God has promised to his people are yes in Jesus. I will never leave you or forsake you. Yes. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Yes. I will never abandon you. Yes. I'll be with you. Yes. I will send a Savior. Yes. In Jesus, they are all yes. But secondly, he says this incredible line that it's, it's not just the promises of God that are yes, but our prayers are yes. It says, through him, in verse 20, we also say amen to the glory of God. Now you might not know this, but the Hebrew or Aramaic word for yes is amen. So when we pray and we say amen at the end, what we're saying, yes, I agree, I'm all in. That sounds like a great idea, Yes. But I wonder if you noticed that not only are our prayers to Jesus, yes, but our prayers are not only to him, but through him. That our prayers are a reminder that God has made a way for us to communicate with him, to be with him, to be face to face with him. That in Jesus, we see God's acceptance and his love for us. And thirdly, we see his provision for us. In verse 22, he has put his seal upon us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. We are his people and God has adopted us. And we know this because God has said yes to us by providing his spirit for us. He has sealed us. Yes, yes, yes. The triple yes of this passage is that God's promises are yes. Our prayers are yes. His provision is yes in Christ Jesus. But at this point, you might be going, well, isn't this just a diversion? Paul was giving a response to the allegations about him that he's double-minded. And he sort of said something at the start that his conscience is clean. Well, good for him. Why is he making all these points about God's faithfulness? God isn't on trial here. Well, it's important that he does so. Because if God is faithful and God is able to come through on all of his promises, even though we might have to wait for a while, then Paul is faithful because God is the one who changed his plans. That as Paul listened to God, he responded to God and said, I need to do what God wants me to do rather than what everyone else wants me to do. And so I'm going to trust his faithfulness rather than my own words. He points to God. His faithfulness is the evidence of my own faithfulness. I'm being faithful to him. Paul goes on to say in verses 23, I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. 
I do not mean that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears, out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but so that you should know the abundant love I have for you. Interesting fact, we know of uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and so we call them the first letter to the church in Corinth and the second letter to the church in Corinth, but we actually know that there's probably four letters that Paul has written to this church. A couple got lost along the way. So uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, it says this, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, this is the first letter that we have. So if this is the first letter that we had and Paul refers to another letter, then there must have been a first letter. So the, the first letter of the Corinthians is the second letter. But then interestingly, Paul makes a note of a letter that he wrote before the second letter to the church in Corinth. He said in verse 4, I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. So what's going on? What, what happened here? Well, we don't know. We can make some assumptions about what happened. And what, what I think is going on is that a Paul, after writing to the church in Corinth for the letter that we have, the first letter, is that he's heard about some things that are going on in the church. And he's headed over on a short journey via boat, that 400-kilometer journey, just to set things right. This is a church that he loves. He wants to see them doing well. And he arrives and he thinks he's going to work together with the people there to set things straight. But it didn't quite go like that. He received a pushback. There were new teachers there who mocked his appearance, who mocked his, his way of speaking. There were people working against him. He left disappointed, disheartened. And what we assume happened is that Paul then headed back to Ephesus on the same short trip and wrote the church a letter. What he says is his tearful letter, a letter that he wrote with tears rolling down his cheeks. He wants to see them repent. He wants to see them return. But we don't think that's what happened. Paul had good intentions. He wanted them to return to God, to put God first, to trust him, to, uh, to, to put back in place whatever was going wrong. But that's not what happened. Nothing happened. Or rather, it probably went worse. It probably broke the trust that the church in Corinth had with Paul even more. It probably fueled the discontent even more. And so Paul says, I'm not going to come to you anymore. I'm not going to turn to you. Because, look, look what happened last time I was there. I don't want to cause you more pain. And to be honest, I get it. I get it. This is a church that he loves, that he planted, that he founded, that he's toiled for, that he's lived with for 18 months, that he's made multiple journeys to out of love for this church. And what has he received in return? He's been mocked for his appearance. He's been teased. He's been set aside. He's been slandered. He's been distrusted. 
This is the kind of time where you get to the end of a relationship and you're like, well, just, just, just screw you. Screw you guys. I don't want anything to do with you. You, you stiff-necked, you hard-hearted people. You know what you are? You are toxic. I want you out of my life. Stuff you. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't say stuff you. He doesn't call them toxic. He says something that I think is profound and incredible. Starting in verse 23, he says, I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. We get that. Verse 24, I do not mean that we lorded over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm. I think this is one of the most profound things in Scripture. Paul is saying, I continue working, I continue laboring because my mission in life is to work with you for your joy in Jesus. My goal is to work with you for your joy in Jesus. What an incredible mission statement. Like just, just kick Jeremiah 29.11 to the curb. Stuff that. I want, I want this kind of mission statement. I want the kind of mission statement that says, I'm going to work with you, even in trials, even what what Paul says is the sentence of death, this overwhelming sense of emotion. I'm working with you to secure your joy in Jesus. I love what John Piper says here. He says this, That's what I do morning, noon, and night. Every sermon, every wedding homily, every funeral meditation, every staff devotion, I'm targeting their soul for greater joy in God. That's what I'm about. If I see them drifting off into other kinds of inferior joys in their life, I'm on them because I want them to have superior joy in God. Paul said that it was his goal. I want it to be mine and I want it to be yours. You don't have to be a pastor to have that kind of mission statement, that my goal in life is to work with you for your joy in Jesus. Not some inferior joy, not just that you might be happy, not that I, you know, I could be happy if you give me jelly beans, but jelly beans weren't going to satisfy me. What I need is superior joy. I need Jesus. That's what we work for, not these inferior joys. And you don't have to be a pastor to do that. You can be a mum and do that, working with the superior joy of your kids. You can be a, a boss and work for the superior joy in Jesus of the people you work with. You can be a uni student and work for the joy of the people you're with. You can be anything and work for the joy of the people you're with. I think this is a word in season for us. You know, we're in the middle of this pandemic. And uh, what I've started to notice is that as people are struggling more and more with the, the, the pandemic, as lockdown starts to shut in, what happens is that people get insular. They start to become focused inwards. And I, I get it. There's a lot of pressure. People are struggling. But I don't think I've ever witnessed someone focus inwards and become satisfied. Now, I, I get it. We're all zoomed out. We're overworked. We're stressed. We're anxious. We're over it. We're done with it. But I wonder what would happen if we said to one another, I'm going to work with you for your joy in this season. I'm not going to just set out to get me and mine. I'm not going to work for my joy in Jesus. I'm going to work for your joy. 
I think that would set us free from the suffocating attempts to secure our own joy apart from the people that God has provided to encourage us. God has actually provided community and each other so that we would have joy. Not just securing it for ourselves, but seeking it for each other. And you go, how does that happen? Won't I get forgotten? If I don't secure my own joy, then who's going to secure it for me? Well, one, God is, but keep reading. This incredible word that he says, starting from verse 1. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit, for if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy. Because I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. What Paul is saying to us is that when you are happy, I am happy. As I work with you for your joy, I receive joy. As you work with me for my joy, you receive joy. That when you're happy, I'm happy. That when you get joy, I get joy. And when I get joy, you get joy. And maybe the reason that we're so unjoyful is the fact that we're working for our own joy when God actually wants us to work for each other's joy. It frees us from this suffocating attempt to secure our own joy aside, apart from the people that God has actually provided to encourage us, to persevere, to keep after him. You're happy, I'm happy. And I just, I just know this to be true, that when, when I see God working in other people's lives, when I see God providing joy, there is something that happens inside my soul that stirs, that is encouraging me, that is inspiring me. I need that. We need that. As we traverse this difficult, long season of the pandemic, we need to be working not just to secure our own joy, but each other's, working with each other. Other, pointing to Jesus, the source of our ultimate joy. Now I get it. This this section of scripture uh, is not traditionally seen as sexy. It's it's a bit strange and pauses all over the place. It reads like a Facebook post written at eleven o'clock at night. But I think this is a word in season for us. I think it is a word in season. Character matters. It does. But I am, I am confident that if we live karam deo, before the face of God, that our conscience will be clear. Not just before each other, but before Him. I'm confident that as we look to the faithfulness of God, that His yeses to us in Jesus, that we will likewise be encouraged and inspired to persevere in our own faithfulness. We won't be perfect, but we will be faithful. And I am encouraged that if we truly worked with each other for our joy, we would have it. We would have real, true, lasting joy. So let us not leave this place determined to secure our own joy but each other's. Let us be determined to have a, a, just a confidence about our character that comes before living before God. This stuff matters. It matters normally and it especially matters in a crisis. So I'm going to pray for us. But I encourage you, if you feel that anything has spoken to you in this, this word, reach out to someone. 
If you feel like your character is flagging, reach out to someone and say, help me. If you're struggling to trust in the faithfulness of God, reach out to someone. Say, help me trust God. Because as they work for your joy in Jesus, they will receive joy as well. What an incredible blessing that would be to have a joy filled with, to have a place filled with joy, not because we've done it for ourselves, not because we've secured it for ourselves, because as we've worked for each other, we've been filled by the joy of God. Friends, I want that for us, so let me pray for us. God, we just thank you for this word. We thank you for the life of Paul who lived knowing that Jesus would return, that he would come face to face before you and give an account for his life and so lived with a clean conscience. We thank you for Paul who points to your faithfulness above his own. The Paul doesn't say, look at me, look at my achievements, look at my deeds, but rather look at what God has secured in Jesus. He is our foundation of faithfulness. God, I pray that as we work, fueled by your spirit, given by you, provided by you, that we would, as we work for each other, with each other, to secure that joy, that we would receive joy ourselves, that we would be a joyful community, not because we've focused inwards, but because we've focused on each other, leading us to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.